Okay, so I want to ask you guys tonight, um, what are your hopes for your life as this new year begins? So much of life is really lived out in the mundane, the day after day, doing what you got to do at work or at home, a routine, doing the things that are necessary. I mean, you can't avoid that. That is probably the bulk of life. However, how and why we do what we do can change the mundane and transform it into something that is big and glorious and eternal. You see, we are created for God's glory, and there's nothing bigger than that. That is our ultimate purpose. So the key is to keep that in your sight, in your heart, and in your mind. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. That is our purpose. But the question then is, how? How do you keep that in your vision, that you are living out this great purpose, which is the glory of God? How do you even understand what the glory of God means? Well, we use what God has given us. He's given us his word and his spirit. That's why what you will be doing in this study has enormous eternal value for your life and the kingdom of God because you are going to be in his word and hopefully prayerfully by his spirit, he is going to nourish that part of your heart, your mind, and your soul. The Bible is not a book to be studied. It is a window through which we see God. Keep that in mind. You are always looking for God in everything that we do. Ultimately, that's what you're looking for. Now, Bible study, true Bible study, is reading and thinking empowered by the Spirit of God. It takes time, it takes effort, and it takes prayer because we need His Spirit to give it to us, okay? God wrote a book, and He wants to reveal Himself in that book. And in Romans, we have a very concise letter that teaches us the essence of God and what his purpose is for us. This book is going to stun you, it's going to challenge you, it's going to strengthen you, and it's going to give you hope. What else could possibly do that for you? There's no exercise, there's no diet, there's no fame, there's no money, there's no possessions, there's no family, there's nothing that can give you what God alone can give you when you're in relationship with him. And so I want to read you, and I sent this out um, on the email because I just think it's so appropriate. Um, Psalm 1, okay, really speaks to what I think ultimately, hopefully, we all want for ourselves. And I want you to see how what we're going to do in here on Wednesdays and you're going to do throughout the week. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But, there's the contrast, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And that's just another name for God's word. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And so what is the result of delighting in God's word and meditating on it? Verse 3, 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Wouldn't you like to say that whatever you do prospers? Now let me just qualify that. Prospers by God's estimation, not necessarily what our culture says is prosperous. But a tree, you think of the strength of a tree planted, steadiness by streams of water. And it says it yields fruit. You want to be fruitful. You want to have your leaves not wither. I mean, it is a beautiful thing of what it means when you are anchored in the Word of God, when you're dwelling in the Word of God and in His presence. And so I just love that as I've thought of that for my own life this year. You know, we get to New Year's and New Year's resolutions, and we think about all those details. But ultimately, this is how you become what you really want to be. And so what is it that can harm that, okay? And Jesus tells us that. Go to Mark 4.13. And this is where part of the battle is going to be for us with Bible study, okay? Mark 4.13. Jesus is um, explaining the parable of the soils, okay? And so he talked about the farmer and the soils and how he sowed the seed, some fell on the path, and then some fell on the rocky places, and then so forth. But he explains it starting in 4.13, and there's a word for us here. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown, As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown to them. So it doesn't even have chance to grow. They hear the truth of God, but it's just gone. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. So that's different. They've at least received it. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution persecution comes because of the word they quickly fall away so difficulty causes them to abandon what they know of truth still others now this is where it can happen to us still others like seeds sown among thorns hear the word but the worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word making it unfruitful Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or 100 times what's sown. And obviously, we want to be fruitful. We want to be that last soil. But what is it that prevents worries of this life, deceitfulness of wealth, all those things we get so easily caught up in? Not all of them are bad things in and of themselves, But they can come in and choke out the word. They can choke out your time with the Lord and so forth. It will be a battle. And every week won't be the same. Every day won't be the same. But remember, you are pursuing a relationship with God through his word. That's what you're doing. You're not completing a course of study. Yes, you're studying. 
You're using the tools, but it's so much more than that. So keep that in mind. Come here when you can. If you miss, listen to the lesson. Keep up as best you can. If you miss two or three weeks, come. It's fine. It's not like it's a deal. You just have to keep at it because it's a lifelong pursuit, ladies. Okay? What we don't want to do is become fools and be distracted and let lesser things choke out the best thing. And that looks different for different each of us, and it looks different at different times. But ultimately, it is still that pursuit, okay? Prayer is really important, so it helps to keep you from being distracted and confused and your time being unproductive. Each lesson, um, I've talked about that. I'll give you a study guide with questions. Um, it's fine if you don't get your questions answered. They're there just to help you get more than if you just come and listen. You can come and just listen to my teaching, but you will not get nearly as much as if you have spent time dwelling on the questions, thinking on them, and so forth. What my goal in those questions is that you learn to ask your own questions of Scripture. Um, after you're in a pattern of an inductive Bible study, I know this from the years I was in Bible study fellowship, um, and you're used to someone else asking those questions, then you sort of develop the habit of going before a passage of Scripture and learning to observe and look and ask your own questions and then pursue the answers. And that is the goal. Not for me just to give you a fish on Wednesday night, but to teach you how to fish, okay? Um, there's also a big difference in discussion time when people actually bring something to discuss. Then we're not talking about not that there's anything wrong talking about other personal things, but there, there is a real connection around the Word of God that is deeper and richer than just talking about, not that you don't want to include personal things, but I, I think there's a different level with that. Um, I want you to love God with your mind. So therefore, the way I'm asking you to do your homework is to read the question, read the passages, pray, think on it, you can use your cross-references if you have those in your Bible. Um, and you can use a concordance, like if you see a word and you're not sure and you want to go see where that word's used in other places. Those are tools where the Bible is interpreting the Bible. What, I, what I'm asking you not to do is not be sure of something and go read a commentary. When you come, I'm basically going to give you commentary. That's what my teaching is like, commentary. And... That way, because I've been in group time before where someone will have gone and read what all these other people said, and that's what they bring to share, and that's not really fair to someone that's like wrestled with it, and this is what the Lord's given them. So that way, you're learning to pursue God with your mind, and then after I teach, you can go read everything that you want to read on there and get lots of other perspectives, but it just makes it richer to what God has given you, and there'll be times when you'll, you'll read something, and you're like, I have no idea. That's okay. Don't be afraid to be to dwell in the I don't know. And and I may answer that question when you come, I may not. It just depends. So, you know, it's a lifelong pursuit. Um, so that's kind of how it works. Now, if you would take out your introduction to the course, I just want to make a couple of points on here. Um, I wrote this out. And and th this is how I describe this class. It's a study of the book of Romans in which the glorious gospel of God's grace is unfolded in all of its majesty. 
And there's a reason I wrote that because, you know, a lot of people look at Romans and they just think, oh, doctrine. And there is a lot of doctrine, especially the first 11 chapters. But the reality is, just like I said, the Word of God is a window that we see God. And, and there, there are a lot of themes in Romans, but God's grace is so stunning when you understand what he has done for us. And we look at details of it. We're going to look at things we don't fully understand and comprehend. But the goal is to have our mind and our heart stirred by the beauty of what we see. The other byproduct is that it's going to make you a lot more confident in sharing the gospel, understanding what God has done. Now, these are the same foundation scriptures that I gave to y'all that were in the first part. But they're on there because there's a two-part in Bible study. There's your part and there's God's part. That's why this proverb says, My son, if you accept my words, store up my commands within you, turn your ear to wisdom, apply your heart to understanding, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure... Now, that's a lot of effort right there. That's a lot of desire. That's your part. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For or because the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. God waits to be wanted, ladies. You cry out. You pursue him. You want to know him as a treasure. Then he's going to give you understanding. And then it says, Second uh, Timothy 2 7 reflect on what I'm saying for the Lord will give you insight so there's your part reflecting and then God's part he gives and then uh, Psalm 39 3 my heart grew hot within me and as I meditated the fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue so as you think on these things and dwell on them and put them in your heart and mind it is going to stir a fire in your soul. And then hopefully you're going to be bold to speak. You know, one of our goals is many more in 24. Is that what it is? But Pastor Phil is encouraging us to fulfill the Great Commission. And we talk about what we're excited about. We Nobody has to tell us to talk about our grandkids or if you're a football fan, the Razorbacks or whatever. You talk about what you care about. And so the goal is to stir our hearts so that we don't have to like muster up our courage to talk about Jesus because he's the most amazing treasure. We can't keep silent about him. So that is a goal. And then at the very bottom, I've got a few other notes there. At the very bottom are, is my contact information. Feel free, any point to call, text me. If you have a prayer request, you have a question or whatever, I'm, I am happy. Just let me know who you are if I don't have you on my phone. So um, that's just kind of how... I would encourage you to do the Bible study um, and kind of how things are going to go here. Like I said, it's laid back. Come as you can, and we are love to have you. Now, what I'm going to do now, since we've already covered the first eight chapters, is I'm going to do a little recap for everybody. Um, those that are new, and it's been a while since we've been in it, I'm just going to hit the high points. I'm going to give you some of the truths that I already gave you from uh, the chapters as we go through to just sort of remind us about what we know since I'm taking so long to go through Romans but feel good you should feel good there are pastors that have taken years to teach through Romans so I feel like you know what 32 weeks I'm doing pretty good 
So Romans was written by Paul to the church in Rome that he had not founded. Many, you know, most of the other letters were to churches that he had founded as he traveled and took the gospel. Uh, many people believe it was probably founded after Pentecost. That was after Jesus' death and resurrection. They were all gathered, and God gave the Holy Spirit in a very powerful way. Uh, Peter stood up, preached a powerful message. People had come, the Jews had come from all, you know, all over the, the Roman Empire to Jerusalem and for the feast, and they heard the word of God, and God's Spirit fell, and you know, thousands were saved, and then when they went home, they took the gospel with them. And so many believe, Scripture doesn't lay this out, that that's probably when the church at Rome was founded, okay? Um, primarily, it was Jewish believers that had come home and done that. And so the church that began there that would probably met in different groups or houses was primarily Jewish at that time until the Emperor Claudius um, sent the Jews packing out of Rome, both the, the regular Jews and the Christian Jews, okay? And so that left the Gentile church that had, had come along there at Rome for about five years. And then when Nero let them come back, the church had pretty much been taken over by Gentile Christians. So this created a tension between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. Therefore, one of the reasons that I think Paul wrote this was he was functioning in a pastoral role, not primarily addressing um, how an individual comes to Christ, but the core identity of believers. What does it mean to be in Christ? He was wanting to promote unity and purpose to the church and into the body of Christ. And so most likely... What had happened was he put together in one letter a core of all the teaching that he had done throughout the empire that we saw in the book of Acts as he traveled and planted churches. Um, Luke even said that he stayed in Ephesus for two years, teaching all day every day, which some people figured up that would be the same amount of time you would spend in seminary. So he had had a lot of time to nail down the doctrine, what the truth was of the gospel, the opposition, the questions that had arisen, and, and to address that. So what he did is he put it all together in this letter, what does it mean for the new covenant after Christ came? And he put it in the form that was most common or very common, which is in a, in a sense of arguments. The rhetoric of that day was a sense of arguments. So that's what it is. He is making an argument for what is the gospel and uh, one of the techniques often that they would have is this imaginary person that would argue or pose a question so then they could come in and refute it and lay out more of their argument. So that's what we see. So when you're reading Romans, it's different than like a narrative, like in the Genesis story of what happened. It's a sense of, of, of arguments of what the gospel is. What does that mean for Gentiles? What does it mean for Jews, for God's word? Paul was very steeped in the Old Testament. He uses the Old Testament a lot and makes application with it for Christ. And so even in this next lesson in your homework, as he's going to mention you know, Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and Esau, I have given you several passages to look at in the Old Testament just as reference to go back. Some of you will be familiar with that. Some of you may not. 
and it's not the full picture, but I'm hoping it'll give you a little bit of a picture uh, of reference of where he's going. So, Paul opens the letter identifying himself as a servant of Christ. So, in the greeting, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. So Paul starts off, and not only he identifies himself, but then he gives a whole theology of Christ right there in one verse. But notice, he calls himself a servant of Christ. And we said a truth for that is the depth of your surrender determines the degree to which God can use you. Paul did not say, hey, I'm this great apostle and I've traveled all over and, excuse me, I've started 1,500 churches. And yeah. He called himself a servant of Christ because he was humble. He realized what his role was, and yet in his humility, God was able to use him in a mighty way. Uh, then in verse 3, he, gives, he gave us the theology of Christ, his deity, and his humanity. And then he goes on, and let's skip over and take a look. Um, he talks about how he longs to visit them. And then look what Paul says in verse 14. He says, I'm obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks. Okay? Both, and the Greeks generally mean the, the non-Jews, the pagans, okay? I'm obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. And before we get to the next two verses, which are the thesis of the book, I want you to notice three things that Paul says about himself. Well, actually, he goes on. First, in verse 14, Paul's obligated. Verse 15, he's eager. And then, in verse 16, you know what he says? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So there's three things right there that describe Paul. Obligated to everyone eager and not ashamed and I want to ask you especially in light of what our pastor's saying to us as a church about the great commission does that describe you do you see yourself obligated to those that don't know the Lord both whether they're church people or not church people that includes everybody he says the Greeks and the non-Greeks are you eager to share the gospel and are you not ashamed that was a challenge to me. And I, I would say I want to be, but a lot of times I'm busy. That would be what Lisa Walker would say. I'm not ashamed. I want to be eager, but I'm really busy. And I'm distracted. That's just me. And I want to do better with that. And then Paul gives us what is called the thesis, or the main point, 16. And I hope you guys... If you haven't memorized these two verses already, I gave the group last year the challenge to memorize these. And I have it memorized in about two or three translations. So I'm going to read it out of my NIV because I kind of bounce back between the King James and whatever. But Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? 
because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Why? For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, when we say the gospel, the gospel means good news. Good news. That's what it meant. And so why would it be good news? Paul is going to go in and lay that out for us. Because if I came to you and said, I got great news, here's $20. Well, that would be okay news. But let's say that you had to have $20 to get your tire fixed or there's no way you could get home through the snowstorm and you had no money and there you were desperate and you were going to freeze to death on the side of the road if you didn't have that $20 and there was no hope for you. And I said, here's $20. Now, would that be better news? Absolutely. So Paul is going to lay out the truth that we don't even see about where we really stand before God and why what Christ has done is good news. Okay, and that's where we're going to be going next in here. And so he says a righteousness of God. Righteousness is defined by God. It's righteousness is being according to his standard, what God expects, who God is. And in his holiness and everything that he is being living your life in such a way that lines up perfectly with him in all aspects. And when we sin or we fail to do that even one time, we are not righteous. That's what sin is. We have missed the mark. And because God is perfect and holy, one sin keeps you out of his presence. Because he has to be just. He can't just say, oh, it doesn't matter that you sinned. Come on, it's fine. We can do that because we don't set the standard. But because God sets the standard, even one sin keeps you from his presence, and he has to pour out judgment on you. That's what God's wrath is. And so when we hear about salvation, so many people don't even, that has no meaning to them because they don't know what you need to be saved from. But what you have to be saved from is the wrath of God. And we love to talk about God's love, and he is love. And God, yes, he's holy, but a lot of times we don't understand what that really means. Because he's so separate and so perfect and so pure, and he's just, he has to punish sin or he's not true to who his nature is. And so that presents a dilemma. We all deserve punishment, even for one sin. So... Paul is about to lay that argument out, starting in Romans 1.18, how all people are under the wrath of God. Because you're not going to appreciate the $20, which Christ is much more than $20. That's a really poor illustration, but it's the best I thought of on the fly. You're not going to appreciate the rescue if you don't know what you're headed for. And so that's what Paul does all the way into chapter 3. So... No one is righteous. That's where we're going, okay? We're not righteous. So let me keep going as we make our way through Romans on our recap. So let's go to Romans 1.18, and this is what he's going to say. For, some translations say, 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So, so Paul is starting off to say God has made himself known through creation. Everybody throughout the whole world can see evidence of God. They may not know everything. They can't know everything that he teaches us in his word. But in, in, in general revelation, in creation, everyone has something in them to know there is a God and the opportunity to respond. So there's no excuse in that respect is what Paul says. But he keeps going. So let's see what that wickedness did. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave him thanks. So once they choose to reject him, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Remember, I said you were made for God's glory. God's glory's everywhere. He's revealed his glory in all things. They exchanged that for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desire of their hearts. And then we start this whole passage about God giving them over to the sin that they choose. So, he said the wrath of God is being revealed. Okay? Um, we see the wrath of God being revealed in God giving people over. And ladies, if you've lived very long, you know, you're not as old as me, most of you, but you see in our culture how crazy things are going and what people are believing and where what they're obsessed with. And you're looking at violence. You're looking at the sexual immorality. You're looking at no nobody believes right or wrong. What I can't even define a woman. You decide in your own mind what you are. All this stuff, in my opinion, is evidence of God giving our culture over. It's the wrath of God already being revealed. Now, that's different than his final wrath. One day, and we see this in the book of Revelation, one day God is going to pour out his wrath on the earth, and then he's going to make a new heaven and new earth, okay? That is the ultimate pouring out of wrath, okay? But right now, it is being revealed already. We're seeing it as he's giving people over. That's what Romans is saying. And he's saying everyone's without excuse because there's a certain measure of creation that reveals God. And there's that thing in you that says, I know there's something bigger than me. And therefore, then you're accountable to look for it, to pursue it. And whether you pray and ask God and he brings someone in your path at the grocery store or he leads you to come to this church or you find a Bible study online or someone at work says something to you, if you want to know God, he will send someone there. And you may be that someone, ladies, that God is sending to someone that is wanting to know him. It's no accident that you're here. 
whether you have given your life to God or if you're listening online, whether you've already surrendered your life to Christ and you know him and have a relationship or you're just knowing there's something more and you're pursuing it, God is going to speak through his spirit and his word and draw you to himself and reveal himself to you. So as we look at God pouring out his wrath, here was an, here's a couple more truths that we saw. God's holiness exposes sin and God's wrath opposes sin. He has to act because of his holiness own wrath and his justice. We also saw that the essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they desire. He gave them over to what they chose. They exchanged God. They didn't want God. They wanted their own images. And we may not bow down to an image of a bird, but guess what, guess what image uh, is pretty much ruling our lives apart from God? Self, the image of God. We exchange God for the images of man, for self, whether it's ourselves or someone else that we have a tendency to worship that we live our lives for. The essence of evil is to dishonor God, not treating him as the most valuable, satisfying treasure in the universe. That's what it means to not glorify him as God. That's what he said. For all they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. They treated him as less than what he is. And in Romans 3.23, it says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It means not putting God in his proper place and treating him according to his infinite worth. So Paul begins to show how we all deserve God's wrath and are accountable to God. We saw first the pagan, those that all they know is from creation, Okay. And so here was another truth from that passage I just read. A deluded heart makes you a prisoner of your own lie. A deluded heart makes you a prisoner of your own lie. When you reject God, then you start to have a mind that is a lie, and you're a prisoner in it, okay? So that's what Paul's doing at the beginning. Then he moves over to chapter 2, and he talks about the morally upright person. Okay, so first we have the pagan. And then chapter 2 covers, um, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. So he goes on and says, like, you're not fulfilling all of this either. Okay, you're not doing everything. And then he moves on after he talks about the morally upright to uh, the Jew, okay? After he gets to the, the morally upright, um, I think it's in verse 17. He says, now if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about relationship to God, and he talks about the Jew and how they're not doing everything the right way, and he covers that. And then he gets in chapter 3, starting in verse 9, a summary and now he's covered the pagan, the morally upright, and the Jew. And the summary says this. And this is really not good news. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. 
There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. There's no peace. They do, what, the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And then he says, um, now we know that whatever the law says, that's God's word, his law in the Old Testament, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And he says in verse 20, through the law, you're not declared righteous, but you become conscious of sin. So now he's just spent almost three chapters or two and a half chapters laying out, even if you're morally upright, even if you're a Jew following the law, you're not doing it perfectly. You, even if you're doing it, you're probably not doing it in the right way. Therefore, you're accountable to God. And so it's bad news, ladies. It's we're on the side of the road. It's a snowstorm. Our tire is flat, but way worse. And then the glorious verse, but now, okay? But before he says, but now, we ask ourselves, why has he spent so much time laying out the unrighteousness of everyone and why they're under God's wrath? And I love this quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. And it's not scripture, but I love it because this is what this guy, I don't even know who he was, Gustav Stalin says. He said, only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. Only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. So in 321, he says, but now. So here's everybody's accountable to God. Nobody can make it. Nobody is good enough. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes. How do you get this righteousness? How do you get this alien righteousness that you need? It comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and 24, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. So now we have a way to get God's righteousness. You see, God, because he's just, he had to pour out wrath on sin, but he's love. So how can he uphold his holiness and justice and rescue sinners? It's a dilemma. So you know what he does? He becomes the sacrifice. That's where you get the self-substitution, divine self-substitution through divine, divine self-satisfaction. God satisfied his own justice by substituting himself in Christ. So that's, that's a different thought. It comes from John Stott's book, uh, The Cross of Christ. We always think of Jesus as God's son, which he is, but Jesus is also God. And there's a different element when I read that that gave me a perspective on the cross. That God himself, he didn't just send his son, he came himself in his son. To do the very thing that he required so that because we couldn't. 
And there's just a level of that that is powerful and beautiful. John Stott says, the concept of substitution is at the heart of both sin and salvation. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. I love that. And so he came and he died on the cross, paid the price for our sin, so that by faith we can receive his righteousness and be made right with God. That's the only way you can be saved. You can never be good enough to make up because if you sin one time, you've got to pay for it. Our culture thinks a lot of times if you've got more good things than bad, you can get in. They do not understand the holiness of God. One sin cannot be in the presence of God. So God himself became the substitute. That is the beautiful picture. That is the gospel. And there's all kinds of facets and pieces of that that we've looked at, we're going to look at that we don't understand, but that's the heart of it. On, on the cross, we see all the attributes of God, his love, his holiness, his justice, all of those things happening at the cross. So then in chapter 4, the question came up, if righteousness is credited through faith, then the law doesn't matter. The Jews thought that they needed to obey the law. And so Paul goes on in chapter 4 and talks about Abraham, the father of the Jews that they looked to, and how it was credited to him as righteousness when he believed God. It was before he, the law had even been given until Moses. It was before he was circumcised. All those things the Jews trusted in, Abraham was credited righteousness before that. And that's what chapter 4 is all about. Okay, it said Abraham against all hope believed, being fully persuaded God had the power to do what he promised. So Abraham was old, had no children, there was no hope for him and Sarah to have children. God said, you're going to have a son and you're going to have many nations. Well, he believed God. He left his homeland, followed God and believed God. So it was credited to him as righteousness. Then we got to chapter 5. And Paul starts off chapter 5, giving 1 through 11, all the benefits that we get when we come to the Lord in faith, trusting Christ to be our substitute, trusting Christ for salvation, asking God to forgive us. We are justified. We have peace with God. We have access to God. We have a standing in grace. We have joy and hope in the glory of God. We have the ability to rejoice in suffering. We have God's love poured out through the Holy Spirit. We're reconciled to God. All of those are in the first part of chapter 5. Then in the second part of chapter 5, he talked about a mystery. How do we get this, how do we get this righteousness, this standing in Christ? In what way can we be united in Christ? And he makes the argument that we're all united in Adam in some way because of sin and death. He makes that argument, and he says, just as that happened, those that believe are now united in Christ and get life. So you either live with sin and death or righteousness and life. And he made that contrast, okay? The fruit of sin is death. The fruit of righteousness is life. And so he ended chapter 5 with verse 20, where sin increased, he said, grace increased all the more. What Christ did was much greater than what happened with Adam. So then Paul says, well, if sin increased and grace increased, should I just keep sinning so I get more grace? And he says, no way. He says, you have to put to death 
that part of your flesh that still battles. We're new in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. We're right with him, but we still live in this flesh. So there's still a battle. One day when he takes us to heaven, our flesh will be new, and we won't still battle desires. We won't battle our unbelief and those things. But right now, we have to fight that fight, and it's on us to put to death the misdeeds of the body, okay? The cross delivers us from sin and gives us power, but we still have that battle. It's not our master. We have the spirit of God now, and we cannot make sin our master. We can live out from under that, okay? We are now slaves to righteousness. And then in chapter 7, he talks about the written code and then the new covenant by the spirit. But lest you think... Lest you think that because you have the Spirit of God now and you're right with God that it's a breeze and I don't have to make any effort, Paul goes into the whole thing about I still battle myself. What I want to do, I don't do. What I do want to do, I don't do. That whole passage there. Only a new creation in Christ is going to live in that tension between sin and righteousness. The fact that you have a battle, you want to obey God, but you struggle is a sign that you have the Spirit of God, okay? Another sign that you have the Spirit of God and you've been saved is that you hate your sin. Not that you're perfect, but you hate it when you sin. That is a Spirit of God living in you, giving you a hatred for your sin. The Christian, and I love this truth, the Christian is both indwelt by the Spirit, you have the Spirit of God, but harassed by the flesh. Anybody in here harassed? Yep. And then we get to the beautiful chapter 8, which is assurance of our salvation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ. We don't have to worry about God's ultimate wrath. There's no condemnation. We have the power of the Spirit in our lives. Our obligation is now to the Spirit, not the flesh. The flesh is not our master. Our adoption, we are now God's children in a way of relationship He loves us as a father. We are heirs of God. Everything that God has is ours and co-heirs with Christ. There's suffering, but the suffering is not going to compare to the glory that we're going to get one day, and that makes it bearable. And then Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And God has done all of this for us. Romans 8.29. Let's take a look at that. Romans 8.29. Some amazing promises we looked at in Romans 8. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Glorified one day is when we're going to have the new body and live in his presence. And God sees it as a done deal. It's so sure if you have given your life to Christ that it's a done deal. So you have hope of that, okay? And then it says, what shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What an amazing promise If God's not going to spare his own son or himself, so to speak, 
Why would we doubt he's not going to give us anything that we need or hope for according to his purpose? And then he talks about how nothing can separate us. If we want security, we have suffering, we battle the flesh, but nothing can separate us from the love of God. And you can go back and read that if you want to just reflect on that. And so we have great confidence that if we have walked this road of salvation, if we are trusting, if we have prayed and turned from our sin, asked Christ to be our substitute, to save us, to be the sacrifice for our sin, and make him the Lord, the boss of our lives, if we see him as our treasure and we make a commitment to live for him, nothing can separate you. You have hope. Yes, there will be struggles. Yes, it will be difficult. Yes, you will battle your flesh, but you don't have to fear the wrath of God. You don't have to fear the best is yet to come for sure. That is the hope of this. And so that is what the gospel is all about. So that brings us now, that was just a recap of the first eight chapters. That brings us to chapter nine, where we're going to start this week. Paul is now going to set out to answer the question, so what about the Jews? They were God's chosen people. God promised them all this stuff. Lots of them are not trusting Christ. So what do we do with that? Okay. As we delve into this, I want you to keep in your mind that we'll look at some things that are going to be confusing and hard, and we're going to spend two or three lessons on chapter 9. But what I want you to see is grace. I want you to see grace. Look for grace in everything because I want you to be stunned by God's grace. That, I mean, the first eight chapters in the nutshell ought to be pretty stunning right there that God has done this, okay? But we're going to see that as we get into some mind-bending teaching. And ladies, let me remind you, when you're studying God and his ways and the things of God, you're not really studying if you don't ever get to a place where you're like, I don't even see how this is possible, okay? There are going to be things like that that you're going to get in your mind, and we want to make all these nice, neat little boxes, but you're not going to be able to. And so what I want to encourage you is twofold. Don't run away from struggling with the deep things of God that are hard. And when you get to that place and your brain goes as far as it can, that should take you to your knees in worship. And you leave the mystery to God. That's where you come away with wealth in wrestling with some of the deeper teaching in Scripture. That's where I have found great value myself. And if you think Lisa Walker's going to come up here and explain something perfectly that People in the church have battled for thousands of years. That isn't going to happen. But God will give us more than what we have. He will show us new things. He will affirm things. He will stir our hearts if we come. And that's what, that's what I look forward to. Because he does it over and over again when you put yourself in the word of God. Okay, so look for grace. And um, that's my exhortation. And then let me pray. And then we'll do our table time. Oh, God, your word is so great, but it is only great because it reveals you. How you could love us in such a way as rebels and those that have hearts that run after other things, that you could love us and pursue us and give yourself for us. God, forgive us that we do not walk as you are our treasure. Lord, I pray that you will become our treasure 
in this study. You are so worthy of that, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.